Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. That's right. A couple of years ago, I read on the front page of a well-known international newspaper the story of a truck driver in Italy who habitually visited brothels when he was on the road. On one occasion, an associate told him about the best brothel he had been to and whom he should ask for to receive the best service. He decided to follow up on the recommendation, even though it was dangerously close to his house. When he arrived at the brothel, he asked the services of that particular prostitute and awaited her arrival. To his utter shock and anger, when the woman walked in, he discovered that she was his wife. He was enraged, realizing that while he had been on the road, His wife had been making a living through prostitution. Totally out of control, he grabbed her and would have killed her had he not been restrained. Robbie writes, I cannot help shaking my head in utter disbelief as I read this story. Here was a man completely untroubled by his own duplicitous and debauched lifestyle. Yet, when the tables were turned on him, he could not escape the horror of being a victim of his own philosophy. That, my friends, is a great example of how we can be completely blind to our own sins and yet ready to judge those same sins in someone else. This is what we've been looking at in the story of the woman caught in adultery. Welcome back. We will be finishing up that story today. We'll be spending the majority of our time unpacking verse 11. So don't get too excited thinking I'm just rushing through so we can eat cupcakes in five minutes. I've had Ray Ray include verse 7 for the sake of context. It says, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He was without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down on the ground and wrote. Eventually, Jesus stood to his feet and issued a challenge. He said, in effect, the only one worthy judge is one who cannot be condemned by the law that he supposedly upholds. Therefore, let the perfectly qualified judge among you be the first to execute justice. Then it says he stooped back down and resumed his writing. We will see in the next verse that the effects this had was that one by one, the oldest to the youngest, the hypocritical judges slithered away, leaving only the woman and Jesus in the center of the court. The worthless judges could not condemn, and the sovereign judge refused to condemn, even though he has that option. True to his word, he did not come to condemn us, but to save us. Notice that Jesus with his finger writing once, then talking to the crowd. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then what does he do? He stoops down and writes a second time. Twice he wrote on the ground. Why? I suggest to you that it's because the tables of stone that were written in the book of Exodus were written by the finger of God. Then what happened was Moses descends from the mountain with the two tablets of stone, 
But then he sees the people below involved in a drunken orgy, and so he breaks the law on the ground. In frustration, he breaks the law up on the ground, mirroring what the people were doing by breaking the law with their sin. Then what happened? He goes back up to the mountain, and the Lord gives him a second copy of the commandments. Then God wrote with his finger a second time, just as Jesus wrote a second time. But this time the tablets were not to be smashed in anger, but were to be placed lovingly and carefully inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with a lid that was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where blood would be sprinkled, which speaks of the only way that the law can be truly kept. The ark speaks of the Lord Jesus, the only one who could perfectly keep the law. He is the one who can show us mercy because he spilled his blood. And guess where you are if you are a Christian this morning? You are in Christ. Do you understand that? The law which you couldn't keep, he did. And then Jesus, in essence, covered us by becoming the mercy seat. So when God looks at you and me, he only sees us through the filter of his pure, sinless, and holy son. If we could truly grasp that, it would revolutionize our Christian walk. And the tinsel and the trinket Satan this world tries to offer us would seem like dung in comparison. Well, we know how it affected the crowd that day. Look at verse 9. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Peter Marshall captures this scene in a vivid manner. He writes, Looking into their faces, Christ sees into the yesterdays, and into the deep of the pools of memory and conscience. He sees into their very hearts, and that moving finger writes on, idolater, liar, drunkard, murderer. What should we take from that this morning? It is worth noting that Jesus didn't condemn bad people. He condemns stiff and proud people. And yet we often condemn the bad ones and affirm the stiff ones. Whether it was a prostitute or a tax collector or an outcast, Jesus always reached out to them. Just follow his lives in the Gospels. It was a motley crew of riffraff that followed him around. And yet it never embarrassed him or made him feel uncomfortable. One of the most radical statements that Jesus ever made is found in Matthew 9 when he said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. I find it intriguing that it was the so-called nice people or the, quote, good people, unquote, who are the very ones that day who walked away from the grace of God. And only the guilty adulterer and Jesus will be left. And while the text doesn't explicitly say this, I imagine there is thud of stone after stone 
falling on the pavement. One author said, the stones falling were a miniature tombstone to each man's arrogance. None of the Pharisees are left. One by one, they creep away like animals slinking into the shadows or shuffling off into the crowded streets to lose themselves in the multitudes. They were guilty of the hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul condemned in Romans 2.1, where it says, Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practices the same things. Ironically, those who came to put Jesus to shame left ashamed, while those who came to condemn the woman went away condemned. Verse 10, please. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Finally, when all of the accusers are gone, Jesus now lifts up his eyes and speaks to the woman. Notice, he didn't call her harlot or sinner or adulteress. He called her gune or woman, which is the same title he addressed his mother with in John 2, 4. It's a term of respect. Also, please don't miss that the scribes and the Pharisee called Jesus teacher or rabbi, but the woman called him Lord. Why would I bring that out? It is not enough to, to just listen to the profound teachings of Christ and be amazed. He has to be more than a teacher in order for us to be saved. He must move away from just being one of the great teachers, as other religions say. No, he has to move out of the realm of that and become our Lord if we are to be saved this morning. Now, some have suggested at this point that Jesus took advantage of the requirements of the law itself, according to which it was necessary to have two or three witnesses in any judicial type of meeting. Jesus was one accuser, perhaps, because he knew all things, but all the others are gone. And so the requirements of the law could not be met. This may be right in part. Certainly, it freed Jesus from having to condemn the woman. Yet, to handle this matter like this is to miss the real meat of what this story is about. For when we ask, why did the Lord Jesus not pronounce judgment? The only substantial and ultimately satisfying answer we get is that he did not pronounce judgment against that woman for precisely the same reason he does not pronounce judgment against those today who come to him in faith. It was because of the cross on which he was about to bear the penalty of God's wrath against every sin ever committed by those whom the Father had given to him. But he did not give forgiveness easy. This is not cheap grace. He was only able to do this because he was about to make forgiveness possible by the act of suffering in the place of the sinner. Right now they are on the Mount of Olives. In a couple of months, they're going to change positions. And Jesus will be the one in pain as he will be led away to die for what that woman did. This is the gospel. 
This is the only solution of the problem of how God can remain just and also excuse the sinner. To us, salvation is free. But it is free only because the Son of God has paid that price for us. Verse 11, please. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. First off, and every Christian in here can attest to this, even after we have been saved, there are still times we not only want to sin, but we actually go the next step and commit sin. A worthwhile thing to think about is whether or not there might be some inherently common thread in our apparently different cravings. For example, if Bob constantly turns to overeating and Janet can't stop smoking pot and Larry can't stay away from X-rated stuff, is there anything, each compulsion, that all these such desires and responses have in common? What I'm asking is, is there a unifying reality to all drives towards instant gratification? Is there any sense in which all those things could, in fact, be just one thing? I think there is. I think anyone and everyone who's fallen victim to habitual instant gratification actually, really, is just after the love and acceptance of God. Without God's love, a whole exists, and all the donuts, drinks, drugs, and porn in the world can never fill it. If God's love isn't enough, then you can trust that nothing you try to put in that place will ever be enough. Now, of course, it's also true that forgiveness does not imply license to sin. Jesus did not condemn her, but he did command her to abandon her sinful lifestyle. One commentator writes, Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn, however, was not rendered as a simple acquittal or a non-condemnation. The verdict was, in fact, a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently and to sin no more. That is a very important distinction. The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus has always demanded the transformation of life by turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were always offered the opportunity to start anew. As Paul wrote in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who have died to sin now live any longer in it? Nor is Christ's gracious forgiveness an excuse to sin. Go and sin no more was our Lord's counsel. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you. Why? That you may be feared. 
Certainly the experience of gracious forgiveness should motivate the penitent sinner to live a holy and obedient life to the glory of God. Jesus told the woman to stop sinning. This always follows upon divine forgiveness, for we cannot be saved by God and then continue to live and do as we please. We must stop habitually sinning. At the same time, we can be glad that the order is as Jesus gave it. For if he had said, go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you, what hope would that be? That would be like him telling us, go and breathe no more. We all sin. There would be no forgiveness. Jesus has already disturbed the comfortable, but now he's going to turn and comfort the disturbed. What does he do? He turns to her and he says, essentially, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, again, here we have the most exquisite kind of balance. First of all, let's just point out that he says, go and sin no more. But you notice here concerning the woman, Jesus will have absolutely nothing to do with the victim mentality. Nothing of blame shifting, which has been going on since the Garden of Eden. Adam says, the woman made me do it. The woman said, the snake made me do it. And the poor snake didn't have a leg to stand on. If you're new here to Calvary Chapel, I'm sorry about that. But Jesus knows, and the Bible says, you can't be entrapped unless your wrong desires and motives of your heart entrap you. It says in James that your heart tempts you, not your circumstances. So Jesus will have none of the victim mentality, none of the blame shifting. He turns and says to her, I don't condemn you, but you are sinning. Now sin no more. I hold you accountable to that. I demand now conversion. I demand change of heart. And I demand change of life see the balance because then on the other hand he turns around and says neither do i condemn thee go and sin no more now how can he say that doesn't he know what the law says would you look carefully this man jesus christ does not say you're not guilty because actually when he says go and sin no more he's saying you are guilty he's not saying you're not guilty this is what he says Listen, we are getting to the essence of Christianity. We're getting into the paradox and the beauty and the magnificence of what it really is. He says, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you. How could he say that? Well, in a narrow sense, we've already seen how he can say that. In the narrow sense, he actually destroyed the case against her when he removed the witnesses. So in the narrow legal sense, there is no case against her legally, and so she can't be executed. The legal process had been broken off. But there is no way Jesus is only thinking on that level. You know what he's saying? 
How can he say you're guilty, but I don't condemn you? The Bible tells us, Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible actually says it's because of what Jesus Christ did that God can justify, which is to take condemnation away from the ungodly. The Bible tells us that. He justifies the ungodly. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand that Jesus Christ took your condemnation and he took your punishment? When you believe in him like that and you can rest in him, you can know your punishment is gone. You are guilty in a sense, but you're not condemned. You deserved it, but all the condemnation and all the penalty is gone. So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, imagine what he was feeling. Because he knows, and you know, what it cost him to say that, what it would cost him to say that. He could have said, my sister, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Yes, stones ought to be thrown, but they'll be thrown at me. Spears ought to be launched, but they will be thrust into my side. Thorns ought to be brought down, but they will be pressed into my skull. Come now, my beloved, you are free. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is a shepherd. He is a brother. He's a husband. He's even likened to a hen when he says, I want you to come under my wings. He weeps over Jerusalem, the very ones who are going to kill him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only saw the things that pertain to your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He is the perfect physician of the soul who distinguishes between the sin and the sinner. Behold the balance, though. Behold, on the one hand, this is sin and this is wrong and it deserves condemnation, but I do not condemn you. Why? Because I'll take your condemnation for you. Now, what are the implications of this? They're vast. How should this affect the way we live? The applications are immense. If you are a bruised person, you need to go to him. Now, what that means is, are you in some kind of trouble that has you beaten down? Or have you brought some trouble on yourself that has you beaten down? He wants to help you now. What does it mean to go to him? Look at the text. What it means to go to him is, number one, we must stop our blame shifting. Then number two, we look at him broken and bleeding on the cross. Also, he could say to you and I, neither do I condemn you. Get a sense of that. Then lastly, do his bidding. Say to him like she says, Lord, and now do whatever he tells you to do. 
Then his grace will come into your life and will melt you in the best of ways and begin the process of making you more and more like him. Whenever Jesus Christ, though, gives you a word of grace, it always will include a challenge to obedience and growth. He doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you. Now, I've seen a lot of Christian movies in which they love to go to this passage. They love to depict this passage. But what they'll often always do is say, neither do I condemn you, and that's it. They seldom include the go and sin no more part. Hey, Calvary Chapel, nobody loves like that. Nobody. If you love somebody, you can't stand to see them destroyed. And grace is opposed to self-destructive behavior. Real grace, real love, says I have to get into that person's life and stop that person from destroying himself or herself. Imagine you adopt a child who's a mess. He's from a terrible background. Why do you adopt him? It's just free grace. You don't adopt a child because he's a wonderful person. He may be a lousy person. You adopt him because you love him and you give him a roof over his head and you give him resources to live on. Now what do you do? Do you say, hey, you can live any way you want to. We don't care when you come in. We don't care whether you go to school today or not. Is that how you're going to treat that child? No. If you love him out of free grace, then that real grace brings you in freely and it holds your feet to the fire until you become somebody great. If somebody here says, well, if Jesus loves me so unconditionally, I'd like to come to him, but I'm afraid of all the things that he may ask me to do. Beloved, that's how you love anybody. That's how he will love you. Real grace comes in freely, but then it will hold our feet to the fire until we become somebody who is truly great in character. Let me give you another application. The first one is, if you want his grace, though, his word of grace will always be attached to a challenge to growth and obedience. Now, some of you cannot change bad habits because you're taking them to the law instead of to the cross. Take your bad habits to the cross, and you can truly change. You notice Jesus does not say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Do you see the order? He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. What he means by that is he's saying to all of us, get off of the treadmill of self-effort. Get off of the treadmill of trying to make yourself worthy in God's eyes or in others' eyes or your parents' eyes or your profession's eyes or even your own eyes. Get off that treadmill. I have taken your condemnation for you. Trust in my works, not your works, and get my free acceptance, my no condemnation stamp of approval. Then you'll find yourself being able to get rid of your sin and leave it behind. Then you'll change. But it has to be in that order. Let me speak very personally. For many years, there were things I wanted to change, and I would take them to the law. 
By that, by that, I mean I would say to myself, I have to change these things. And so I would set out to turn over a new leaf. But it never really worked long term. But when I became a Christian, I would take those things to the cross. Then I heard Jesus say something like this. Bill, do you see all these things that are in your life? Look, these things cannot come between you and me in salvation. I've died for them. They're not going to condemn you. But let's get rid of them. Look at what I've done for you. If you keep this up, is this how you repay me for my sacrifice? Is fellowship with me of such little value to, do, to you that you do these things right in my face? Do you defile the heart that I died to cleanse? Come on, Bill. I only want the best for you. I only want your purity. I only want your life to count. That changed me. You see, when I would go to the law and I hear the law in my conscience saying, get rid of these things or I'll get you, what did my heart say? Well, it hardened my heart. I'd say, oh, yeah, make me. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to be honest. It just kind of slipped out. But when I went to Christ, to the grace of the cross, and I heard him saying, neither do I condemn you, Suddenly, everything's different. Now that he does that, he can say, go and sin no more. And I can say, yeah. What do I want all those old things for anyway? They never provided life. They never gave me peace. Now, some of you can't change because you have the order reversed. You're thinking, go ahead and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Oh, no. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you now go and sin no more notice he says neither do i condemn you that's forgiveness but it's still in the vein of grace that he says go and sin no more and just as wonderful as his grace is manifest in forgiveness is his grace manifest to live a holy and obedient life I am so thankful I'm a forgiven person by God. But I am also thankful that God's grace gives me the power to live a different kind of life. How inferior would it be to the life that I have if Jesus was just a forgiving God? To though where he would forgive me every day, I would still continue to live in the same scum that I used to before I knew him. But he gives you and I both the power and the will to live a holy and different kind of life. God's commandments are always his enablements. Or as the f famous poem goes, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick yet denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Do this and live the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. This is just my imagination. But it wouldn't surprise me that when we meet this woman saved out of adultery in John chapter 8 in heaven, it will not shock me that when I walk into her house, she has a painting of this scene 
with Psalm 113, verse 5, stenciled under it. It could have been her life verse. It reads, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes, the princes of his people. As we finish up this morning, you must place yourself at some place in this story. Are you like the crowd who is watching? These witness forgiveness, but they did not enter into it. Are you like the rulers? They were sinners just like this woman, but they went away from Jesus without even hearing the words of his forgiveness. Or finally, are you like the woman who not only heard but also received the gospel message? Of all who were there that day, by far the best one to be is the woman. The rulers went out from Christ into the darkness, and six months later, they would be killing the sinless Son of God. But the woman, well, the woman was forgiven through Christ, who died for her sins and yours, whoever you may be this morning. Let's come to him today. Father, that is amazing grace, and eternity will be too short for us to even try to even fathom the surface of what you've done for us. The freedom that you offer, not just out of sin, Lord, which is glorious in itself, but the freedom to live a holy and righteous life full of joy and purpose. The old ways, Lord, have nothing to offer us. In them were just death. But you have come to give us life and life more abundantly. I pray that with everyone within the sound of my voice or watching on the Internet, if they have not done that, that like this adulterous woman, Lord, they would hear today you say, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.